0: Today, as we continue in our Big Issues series, so we're up to week two out of three, we're looking at and exploring the whole topic of suffering. And I really would love to invite you that if you do have a Bible or a Bible app, that you would have that open at Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be looking at a few different parts of of the Bible today, but also I'd love to invite you that there's an outline on the back of the news, and there's translation points there in Dinka and also in Korean. So if that's helped you, please, please make use of that. But right now, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you so much that in your kindness that we can come to you with all of our questions. We pray now, please, would you be at work in the power of your spirit, teaching us more of your Compassion and also your solution to the suffering of the world. we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first time that Beatrice, my wife Beatrice, the very first time that we had dinner with Bishop Daniel and Rachel in our home, was also the very first time that we began hearing of what life had been like for them in the Kukuma refugee camp in Kenya. Daniel had been one of the lost boys of Sudan. He had been exiled at the age of 12 from Duk. He walked 1,000 miles to Ethiopia, spent six years in a refugee camp there, only then to spend a further nine years in Kukuma with 280,000 people. Not only was there uncertainty of what lay ahead, if they would ever be able to leave or if the wars would ever cease, but every day for all of those years, there was a battle for basic survival. Having sufficient clean water, food, basic medical needs, shelter and sanitation. Famine, illness, and disease pervaded the camp. Death was ever before them, ever present, with daily funeral processions. And as our dear brother and sisters, Daniel and Rachel sat across from us at our dining table, so kindly answering all of our questions, and I have no doubt shielding us from, from the full horror of the experience, not only was my heart overwhelmed and my stomach churning but i could really understand why people would ask god what's with all the suffering at one level that conversation was a surreal experience a world away from our immediate comfortable surroundings in toowoomba yet at another level none of us have to peel back the layers of our lives very far to know the reality of suffering. I know of so many right now in this community alone or people known to us who are in the grips of all sorts of suffering or who carry the wounds of past suffering, of grief, hurt, pain, uncertainty, illness, chronic disease. And we'd have to be really weirdly ignorant not to be able to acknowledge the reality of a world that's plagued by suffering, all forms of suffering, of, of illness, war, violence, of environmental breakdown, of systematic injustice. If God is all-powerful and all-loving, why is there suffering? Now, it turns out we're not the first people to come up with that question, okay? Uh, Epicurus, right back in 3rd century BC, made a very similar observation. The the claim that God is both all-powerful and all-loving just seems really incompatible with the reality of suffering. If God is all-loving, but powerless to do anything, then surely that makes him weak. But if God is all-powerful but cares not to do anything, then surely that makes him cruel. How can God be all-powerful and all-loving, yet let suffering exist? If you're here joining us today or joining us online and you are in the midst of suffering or You carry the wounds of suffering. I'm so thankful that you are here with us today. That takes an enormous amount of of courage, and and I sincerely count that as as great privilege that we might be able to come to that question and come to this question together. I want to say to you that whilst I don't have an easy answer, I don't have a neat answer, I want to suggest that the best way forward for us to begin to wrestle with this question of how Christianity makes sense of suffering is try to consider what Jesus may have said in response to it. Now, there's no one neat chapter in the Bible that gives us all those answers that's labelled neatly for us to come to. But I think with confidence that Jesus would say three things in response to suffering. My heart breaks. It's a broken world. And I was broken to heal it. So, first, in response to suffering, my heart breaks. So, we see verse 35 of chapter 9 of Matthew. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus knew the suffering of the world, not only because he himself experienced it, he was hungry and thirsty, he was rejected, betrayed and crucified, but also because he immersed and he plunged himself into other people's suffering. In fact, throughout Matthew's Gospel, one of the early accounts of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, we see three things going hand in hand with Jesus' ministry. They're summarised here, proclaiming the good news that God's kingdom has arrived in him, uh, teaching people about God and, and what it means to follow him, and healing people of almost every disease, ailment and affliction imaginable. So whilst other kings or religious folk would recoil from or they'd actively avoid people in need, perhaps thinking themselves better than them or not wanting to be made unclean or perhaps even victim-blaming those who suffered, Jesus goes close. Jesus responds with compassion. We see that time and time again. As Jesus goes through all the towns and the villages, teaching, proclaiming and healing, when he sees the crowds, we read and we heard read, verse 36 He had compassion on them. The word for compassion here in the original language is related to the word for our internal organs, a bit like our, our guts. And so what it means is Jesus looks at these people in need. He doesn't look down on them, thinking they're of no value. He doesn't ignore them because he doesn't want his life to intersect with theirs. He doesn't invalidate their suffering, suggesting that it's not that serious. No, Jesus is so moved by their plight that he has a gut-wrenching type of compassion. Perhaps in the face of suffering, there have been times where you have felt looked down on, ignored or invalidated. Let me just say, not so with Jesus. His heart breaks, his guts churn, he has compassion. Here, his compassion is in response to people being like sheep without a shepherd. That is, there's no one to care for them, to guide them, to look after them, to to protect them. They're harassed by authorities and powers, by systematic oppression. They're also helpless. They're unable to do anything about it on their own. In fact, if we scan through chapters 8 and 9, we see that compassion of Jesus expressed in a myriad of ways. We see Jesus so moved with compassion that he heals those with leprosy. He evicts evil from people's lives. He makes the paralysed walk, the blind see, the mute talk, the dead are raised. And in chapter 10, in the face of all the suffering that he feels sick to the guts about, Jesus dispatches the disciples to go out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to drive out evil and heal those who are unwell. He's given them glimpses of what that looks like. Jesus sees their suffering. Jesus sees our suffering. Jesus sees your suffering. In the midst of suffering, we find Jesus right in the thick of it. So I think that that means that that whatever our answer to the question of how can God allow suffering, it cannot simply be because God is cruel. For when we look at Jesus, we are looking at God. He's not disinterested with or apathetic towards our suffering. He's moved by it. That means that not only can we go to God with our suffering and cry out to him with our questions, but it means that when we go to him, if we go to him, we won't find someone who is disinterested or apathetic, but someone who truly empathises with us, truly comes alongside us. There was a time in my life in which I thought it was really inappropriate to cry out, to God with my, my questions, my frustrations, and my pain. I, I thought mistakenly somehow that crying out to God was uh, in some way incompatible with, with trusting God. But that's just not the case. God welcomes us to do that. He can handle our complaints. He has no scarcity of compassion. He's not going to have compassion fatigue. And I want to say, that you have ne- if you've never done that before if you've never cried out to God to express those things, maybe today the one takeaway that there is, is go pour out your heart to him. The Bible is littered with examples of people crying out to God in the face of suffering. Take the Psalms for example. More than 30 of the 150 Psalms are classified as complaint or lament. And if you read through them, they are pretty unfiltered. Psalm 10 says, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Psalm 13 says, how long will you forget? Or even Psalm 22, words uttered by Jesus himself upon the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried out these words, not because he had given up, but because he's identifying with the sufferer. Now, that, of course, doesn't, diminish or resolve our suffering but it's an invitation to express it it means that Christianity is incredibly unique as John Dixon puts it if I were a Hindu saying this sort of thing would be a sign of my ignorance that everything happens as a result of karma the balancing of the universe if I were a Buddhist then this would be proof that I'm not enlightened, that I'm too attached to the things of this world. If I are a Muslim, then this would be border on blasphemy, since in Islam everything that happens is the finger of Allah, decreed in God's eternal book. If I are an atheist, then asking the question is meaningless because there's no one to put this question to. But Jesus, Jesus invites us to cry out to him. His heart breaks for you. And when you go to Jesus with your doubts and fears and pain, He won't dismiss you or push you aside. He will come alongside you with compassion. We can experience, in the power of God's Spirit, His compassion. Second, what might Jesus say in the face of suffering? How do we account for suffering? because it's a broken world. We don't have to look very far to recognise that. We see the brokenness reflected all around us, and if we're honest, we might all see that brokenness within us as well. But what's the cause of that? Richard Dawkins, famed atheist, critic of Christianity, says, well, in fact, there's no ultimate cause. It's just the way things are. He said, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Now, I don't know about you, but I did not find that particularly satisfactory. where's the where's the human dignity in that where's the value of people in that but that's not how christianity sees it a christian worldview says that the source of that brokenness is not blind luck or pitiless indifference but actually the cause of that brokenness is ourselves now let me be ultra clear this doesn't mean that every aspect of our suffering is somehow directly related to some aspect of our personal wrongdoing. We can certainly inflict pain and suffering on ourselves and other people, but that's not what I have in view here. Jesus didn't typically go around to those people around saying, well, you can't walk because of some sort of sin from, from yesterday. He just didn't do that. This isn't karma where those who suffer are just getting what they deserve. Jesus didn't play join the dots of people's suffering to some aspect of their personal sin. No, there is a much bigger problem that is pointed to right back at the beginning of the Bible. In the story of creation, as God creates order from chaos, there was no suffering. It's the most amazing image of humanity in, in right relationship with one another, with creation and, and with God. But as Adam and Eve pushed God to the margins, as as all humanity does, as they rejected God's rule, it sent a ricochet, a shockwave through all of creation that made a mess of things. As they rejected the right ruler of the world, who sustains all things, suffering entered the world. Jesus came into the world not because everything was right, but to set it right. Looking back at Matthew chapter 9, we see that Jesus came to proclaim good news of God's kingdom. That he was opening a way to bring all of creation, comprehensively, back under God's life-giving rule. You know, some might say, well, that doesn't really get God off the hook, does it? You know, why did he create a world in which there was even the possibility that things that would go wrong, in which we would have the capacity to make wrong choices? Isn't God morally culpable for for that? And the answer, of course, or at least part of the answer is, of why creating us with a capacity to to make those choices is because God didn't create robots with no choice, but he endowed us with decision-making capacity that we could love, that we could have meaningful relationships that made possible through that. The problem, of course, is that we use that capacity to do harm and to love. Amy or Ewing Ewing puts it like this. That is why there is injustice, darkness, pain and suffering in this world. Genesis describes the impact of the choices we have made on ourselves, on other people and upon the very environment of the earth. The first humans chose not to love God, but instead to try to be God, to be the final authority over what is right and what is wrong. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that pretty sobering. It's pretty confronting. The reason we rail against the suffering in the world, the reason we long for things to be not as they are, is because that's not how God ultimately Intended things to be in the letter to the Romans Paul says and it's not just us who who long for new creation it's not just us who long for things to be set right but, but the whole of creation he says we know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time so how can we possibly get between where we are and where we long to be. I think there are three options. If you've got other, other options, come up to me afterwards. But I think there are three options, so a bit of choose your own adventure. Uh, option A, there's no hopes to just give up now. Okay? Stop caring for one another. Stop caring for those in need. There's no point. Seems to me that that would deeply betray what it means to be human and our human dignity. Option B, it's up to us. Now, There's no doubt over the last century that we can point to many incredible areas of of progress by all sorts of measures. Indeed, the good news, if you're a Christian, the good news compels us and has compelled Christians for for thousands of years, indeed the whole people of God, to, to be active participants in pouring out God's compassion in the world. This week on all of our front lines, we should be longing to pour out God's compassion, But as much progress as there has been, it's completely evident that we can't possibly eradicate all human suffering. So option C. We need help from the outside. We need help from God. And the incredible news is that God's answer to suffering is himself. Jesus was broken to heal it. As Jesus proclaimed, taught, and healed, he kept warning the disciples over and over again that he wasn't going to fix the world by taking up a royal throne in in Jerusalem, but by taking up the cross. And so he warns them over and over again. And we read in Matthew 20, he says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and he will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked And flogged and crucified. On the third day, he'll be raised to life. Now, when the disciples heard this over and over again, it totally messed with their minds. They didn't get it. It seemed totally backwards, a failure. It seems totally counterintuitive. But Jesus knew it was the only way. That the only way that there could be a permanent solution to our suffering, to the comprehensive brokenness that we are part of and experience was that if he took all of that brokenness, all of that sin, all of that suffering of himself on the cross, that he would defeat it, they would rise victoriously, and that when he returns, bring that to fullness. That there would be a future with no more suffering, no more pain, no more tears, no more death. But you know, that's a massive claim. So, what sort of concrete evidence would help us to believe that this could be true? The sort of evidence that God has given us in the event of the resurrection. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1 In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Peter writes these words to churches who are suffering all sorts of persecutions. He knows that their suffering is real. He doesn't diminish that in any way. But he also wants to assure them that their suffering is not the end, that they can have a living hope because it's bound up in Jesus' resurrection. That's what all of Jesus' healings pointed to. That's what Jesus' resurrection achieves. Jesus' resurrection points to a future when there'll be no more evil, no more sin that we put away. Jesus' resurrection points to a future when there'll be no more tears, suffering, pain or death. And when we put our trust in Jesus, we get bound up in his death, and in his resurrection, along with everything it achieved. Not too long, we're going to witness Bethany be baptized, and she publicly declares her, her trust in the Lord Jesus. We're going to witness her going down into the water. Though she puts her trust in Jesus, it's, it's an image. it's an amazing image of her being bound up in Jesus' death, that her sin has been defeated. And when we see her come up out of that water, very wet, it's going to be a reminder that if she puts her trust in Jesus, she is bound up in his resurrection. That's what we have. Jesus' resurrection becomes our future and the future of all of creation. Those many years ago, as as Daniel and Rachel sat with us that night and they shared of their experience, they also recounted that the greatest Easter celebration that they have ever known, or some of the greatest Easter celebrations they have ever known, were the ones that took place in that refugee camp. I remember them describing this so vividly. I'm so thankful thankful Daniel's here this morning as well. I remember Daniel explaining that together, as they celebrated Jesus' resurrection, that day, Easter day, through that whole refugee camp, with hundreds of thousands of people, their resurrection hope came alive, even amidst the darkness and the pain. It was the most amazing glimpse of the future which is guaranteed because Jesus died and was raised to life. You know, I do not know why Jesus has not returned yet to complete the work of new creation. How long for that? But as I look to Jesus, I don't see someone who is cruel or weak, I see God's love and power poured out for us. The one who is with us, who will return, and who I think is worthy of our trust. So let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much that we can come to you with all of our questions, that we can cry out to you that as we do so that you welcome that that you don't suffer compassion fatigue there's no scarcity of compassion so lord please help us to do that frequently honestly and sincerely but lord how we also thank you that we cannot just cry out to you but that we can have an extraordinary confidence that because of jesus that as you look upon us and our brokenness and the brokenness of the world, that your compassion would lead Jesus to the cross. Oh, Lord, how we thank you so much that on the cross he took all the brokenness of ourselves and of our world and that through his death and resurrection in ways that were so hard for us even to begin to comprehend, that you broke death itself, that you were victorious, over all the pain, the suffering, sin and death. Lord, how we thank you that Jesus' resurrection is the foretaste and guarantee of what we can look forward to when we get bound up in him. Lord, I especially thank you for anyone here today who, so courageous to come along in the midst of, of significant suffering or with the wounds of suffering Lord, how I pray, Lord, may they in the power of your spirit so know your compassion, your comfort, and your presence. Lord, would you please be at work in their hearts that they might know of your love and your mercy even amidst that suffering. Lord, how we thank you so much that because of Jesus' resurrection, Suffering of the world is not the end, but will come to an end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.